How are you guys doing, Chinemaji family? It's your host, Mark Karaki. Excited to be bringing you yet another episode of the podcast. This week, I had the honor and privilege of sitting down with Mr. Idris, legend of the African ecosystem. Idris is the founder and managing partner at Lofty Inc. Capital. His story is symptomatic of the journey that the African startup ecosystem has been through over the last decade and change. Idris's narrative is really about getting inspired, getting started, and keep moving. He has invested in some of the most legendary companies, everything from Mandela, Flutterwave, and a bunch of other very interesting companies that are in his portfolio. This story is just full of inspiration. This story is full of the hope and the belief that we all carry here on the continent of Africa when we think about what's possible. And for anybody else who's a fan out there of this wonderful place, Idris's story is emblematic of how things are changing, how fast they're changing, how things are moving, and where we are going. This is a snapshot over the last decade in how the ecosystem has evolved through one man's journey. How are you guys doing, Chinemaji family? This is your host, Mark Karaki. Excited, excited to be bringing you another episode of the podcast. This week, I have a pioneer in the African tech ecosystem, Idris Aboyeji Bello. Did I get that right? Idris Ayodeji Bello. Oh, yes, it is, 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 is Idris Bello. Just go with Idris Bello. Idris, yeah. As Kenyans, we struggle with the, the Nigerian West African names. We need to expand our palette. But Idris, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much. Caribou, right? <laughs> yeah. And you were just telling me how you were in Nairobi the last two weeks and then looking at your portfolio and you and you also went to, to London. Right now you're in Lagos, I take it. Are you back home? Actually, I'm in Cairo this Oh, wow. So, okay. Yes. So, right. so visiting portfolio corporate. You get around. You're definitely a player in this market. So that's why I'm so excited to host you because there's so much that uh, we can learn from you. So founding partner at Lofty Inc. Management Capital and Investment Venture Capital Fund. And yeah. I think I believe you're raising your third fund at this point, the Afropreneur Vintage, I would call it, or, or series, if you will. Actually, we just closed that this morning. So we were raising a $10 million fund for it. We already uh -huh. you know, were subscribed. So this morning, I was the last uh, working day. So that is officially closed. And actually, we've, we've been deploying that for about six months now, right from our first close last June. And so we've deployed actually over 60% of that fund already. But again, I'm glad to say it's now officially closed. Fantastic. Congratulations on that. First question somebody asks in such a scenario is, where are your investors coming from? What's the mix? So it's a very interesting question because I saw if we look back 10, 12 years ago, when we started at Lofty Inc, we we're trying to build an ecosystem. And for the first decade, I think our first half decade, we focused on building an ecosystem of African founders. We quickly realized that like, it takes a village to raise a child, that an ecosystem of African founders would not suffice by itself. So you also needed an ecosystem of African operators, an ecosystem of African angels and investors. And we saw this because very early on when we invested in Andela in 2013, by five years later, four years later, when there were exits, we saw that the money flowed out to where it came from, which was Silicon Valley. And so very deliberately, a couple of years ago, 
we started building an ecosystem of African investors, African angels. And so I'm glad to report that over 60% of the individuals or the entities who have invested in this Atot fund are actually Africans. So that's why he's to us, African angels, African institutions, and it, it, you know, that's very important to us. Again, uh, we are glad to have other investors from across the world, from the Middle East, from the U.S. But again, I think it's very important to us that a part of this success story belongs to us as African investors too. I, I just love that so much. And it hasn't obviously been an easy journey for an African person to put money into venture capital. It is a very esoteric asset class for the African mindset, if you will. I guess if you could just sum for us, what has that journey been like? What how, what has triggered the change for you to actually have local capital getting in? What are some of the trigger points or changes that has made this happen? Thank you very much. I think what's happened over the past decade is an issue of a success, be getting more success and attracting folks on the ground. When I look back to 20, so 2012 was when we first started fundraising, right? 2010 was when we had started our tech hub in Lagos, uh, the innovation hub. And then by the following year, we were producing founders who needed to be funded. And I remember in 2012, reaching out in Lagos to those I considered high net worth individuals and asking them to fund these things called startups. And it was so strange to them. And a lot of them were like, it's not real estate opportunities or oil and gas, oil and gas opportunities. We're not interested. And so we struggled. Right. Then we... Because I had lived in diaspora, so I reached out to friends in the valley and said, hey, there are these startups coming up in Africa, in Nigeria, particularly back then, would like you to seed them, right? to give them seed funds. And they were like, Africa, tech, startups, no way. <laughs> right? So again, they didn't get started. You know, that's 10 years ago. And then we went back and said, okay, fine, what do we do? And we looked around the world and saw people setting up angel networks angel groups. So we said, okay, we'll set up an angel group ourselves. I would call it the Lofty Inc. Angel Network, LAN. And then uh, we didn't have funds ourselves. So we said, okay, what do we do? So we approached uh, the World Bank then for grants, right, uh, 2012. Mm -hmm. And uh, InfoDev unit of the World Bank and said, we're trying to set up this network called uh, Lofty Inc. Angel Network and we need grants to get it going. And I remember them saying, you need to make it more open, more exclusive. You cannot be named after you guys, cannot be just you guys. Why don't you bring in the rest of the ecosystem? And so we changed the L from Lofty Inc. to Lagos. And that's what led to Lagos really? Angel Network. Yes. And then ah, invited, okay. invited amazing people like Tommy Davis, like Dr. Suleiman, and we collaborated and co-founded that. And they did an amazing job growing that. And that was June 2012, right? Almost 12 years ago. And I was out the Lagos Angel Network began. But one thing we quickly realized was that because it was just beginning, because it was still strange to a lot of people, it, I was taking the time because what they did in the early days was bring together a lot of executives in the banking industry, senior network, high network individuals to invest. And the process was basically they would have demo days every three to six months. Then they will spend another three to six months doing due diligence on these startups. Right. Well, the sad thing was that the companies were dead. So, 
<laughs> it's like having you're having a baby and you're not feeding the baby. <laughs> exactly. You're going to be able to see the babies you have feeding, right? Right? And you this to work. I can't wait and apply all these rules around valuation, around uh, what do you look for again. There was nothing to compare with. And so we realized we have to do something very dangerous, very differently. And what did we do? We started writing personal tickets ourselves. I remember uh, going back and digging into my 401k in the US, my retirement benefit, paying an early withdrawal uh, uh, penalty, and right. taking out a chunk. I started writing checks myself. Uh, so 2013, January, I started writing, and these were small checks, $10,000, $5,000. And then the most we ever wrote around that time was $25,000 that I personally wrote. Uh, in, okay. I think that was July 2014, 2014. But in 2013, it was really $5,000, $10,000, maximum $20,000. And you know, in, in retrospect, it wasn't really a very smart move. And I'll explain why. These were mm-hmm. founders, were first-time founders. There were new cooperatives. Okay. We didn't have anything like exit in mind. No, no idea what we were talking about. Anything called Series A, no tech crunch, right? So there wasn't anything that we'll we just basically just throwing money into deep holes. Ne- not knowing out of the way. But again, that there was just giving founders something to keep them alive. And probably right. 70, 80 percent of those companies died. But what it did was it, it led to a couple of things. One, it helped create a fledging ecosystem. It helped create founders who failed, that, but then would try it again and found something better, or would have became employees in other startups. And so that was exactly. really the ecosystem. Exactly. Because, because for instance, life like, starts to turn. Exactly. Because, like, I was set up like nine, ten stars who did that, probably by eight died. But they were the lucky ones. So, what became Angela, for instance? I was four. We invested in Fora, wrote the first check into Fora in June 2013. It struggled, it died, and, but it reincarnated as Andela again. And today, everybody has heard the story of Andela and all the success and it being a unicorn. But again, it happened because some people uh, like myself, like Pule at CRE Ventures, like Yvonne Johnson, and Eva, a couple of people put in the early tickets in 2013 when it was not yet a fad right, to be an angel investor. And I don't even remember describing ourselves as angels then because again, it wasn't even a fad. But that was really how we got started, right? I started writing those small tickets, all right, in 2013. And then I remember 2014 came, and then Andela was born. And then Andela was like, another chance to write, to follow on, on on our funding. And then I didn't have more funds. And so what I ended up doing was quit my own angel network, which I called the Afropreneur Angels. And Afropreneur was a word I uh, quoted many years back to represent African entrepreneurs leveraging their networks, their exposure to build businesses on the continent. And so, yeah, so 2014, I continued to double down Andela and I basically sent an email to my mailing list. I said, there's this startup we invested in last year, uh, died, but it was incarnated as this. Would you like to come in? And for my friends kept Let me ask you this. And that was really... Let me ask, let me ask you this, because this is very interesting. When you say it died and resurrected, could you... Dig into that a little bit and describe what you mean by that. Yeah, definitely. So what we invested in, so you all know in bridge, right? Amazing, amazing guy. And I've been privileged to pack him about four or five right. times now. So he was, I think when he was about 19 years old then, just coming out of college. He was at Waterloo, right? University of Waterloo. And working on his second startup. Yeah, I done book netto, which didn't do too well. And then he started something called Fura. And the idea behind Fura then was to license content 
from universities in the West, in the US, in Canada, and provided that content to uh, Nigerian universities, uh, to start with, to augment their curriculum and get paid for that. But we really ran into issues because, this again, is before, this is 20... This is before, actually, no. When it was 2013. So this, actually, uh, Coursera and those things are... Exactly, exactly. So for the conversations where with Coursera, Harvard X, MIT X. So those are some of the partners, other partners. Mm -hmm. And so doing licensing content from them and then providing it, uh, curating it to go meet the university in Lagos, for instance, and say, fine, you are teaching electronics engineering, but there's this new module around, let's say, mechatronics that you don't even have the qualification or the experts to teach. But then we'll license the content and then you can use those content to teach those students. And this was before open, you know, all of these things became open and yeah. And that was really what program was put around. And also approaching our companies and say, instead of sending your, your folks abroad to do this short course, why don't we create a short course and all this content for you, right? And this was before everybody had uh, video on their phones and stuff like that. So that was really it. We ran into a couple of issues because, for instance, the regulator in Nigeria said, you're doing all this, then you need to get a license as a university. And, well, <laughs> and just getting, uh, and fundraising was tough. So probably ended up raising just about a little bit over $100,000. And I was talking to friends and they watched this thing. It was just so difficult to raise funds. Again, this is 2013. Let me ask you this, Idris. Of course, going into such established institution like education, that's a tough road to go. Yeah. Looking back, what is it that you could have done, you guys, he could have done different to even not spend so much money? Could he have talked to them first? Was it something that, is there something they could have, he could, they could have done different? So, so one thing you learn quickly in Nigeria is this. For forgiveness, you don't seek for permission. If you seek for permission, in Nigeria, you're not I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Because maybe a time that one reasons why it should not be done, why it can't be done. Or you spend two, three years just okay. trying to this step. So you jump into it and then you seek for permission. So you do 10 things and they take eight things away from you and then you have the foundation for two things. Because what happened was, yes, we couldn't spell this, we had this girl into issues, but then it became the foundation for Andela. Because around the same time was when he and uh, J Jeremy met together and Jeremy was transitioning out of to you, right? And it, looking for something else to do and then uh Fura became the foundation so it was almost like an aqua aqua higher you know transition and Fura became like one third of what became andela but because we had a foundation because we had built a team of our uh, Fura had built a team of developers right they had uh, to build this thing right. out it had been a local team he knew he had created uh relationships on the ground right in nigeria mm -hmm. so it, it, it was a foundation for Andela to be built on and around. And so as Fuera was died and became Andela, and then all the investors would just transition to Andela and they would do, do, double down on, on Andela, right? By investing and then supporting the growth. So again, so I think the, the good thing for us was we were, free, so, so we had this big picture that and always says this, that we were, we stubborn on the vision. We're clear on the vision of empowering or improving the curriculum of Africans of exposing Africans to modern-day knowledge, education, technology. Now, but I think what happened was we became very flexible on the journey, on the approach, on the details. So if you look at what Adela has done today in empowering developers, making people world-class, you probably have closer to our goals of providing better education, right, to, to Nigerians and Africans, 
Right, but wisdom is in a different way. Now we focus more on the developers. And I think that yeah, again, that was a good thing about uh, starting out there, right? Not knowing where where this was going to end. Finding good people, backing them very early, writing a lot of tickets that went nowhere, but a few tickets that really ended up uh, in in good places. And yeah, fantastic. I have I'm fascinated by the mindset that you had at the time, so early, with no proof points, with no experience. But what is it that was driving you guys? What was it that was driving you to go and dip into your 401k? What was the thing that was driving you, that, that you had seen, that you thought would happen here? Yes, so if I step back, so 2010 was a pivotal year for me because I was in business school in the US, all right? And that was actually my first introduction to the field of uh, entrepreneurship. And that was around the same time I was, mm-hmm. I, co- I coined the term uh, Afropreneurship. And yeah, so for, for me, I, so I was looking at around that 2010, I was meeting a lot of young people in there. These networks were very positive about the continent. That was where you had uh, all these ideas about uh, Africa rising, right? There was even this book that right. we read about called Africa rising, right? And talking about what was happening in India and how it was possible possible in Africa. And so we had all these high hopes. And so we have been all these meetings. So I joined an alliance there called the Harambe, Harambe, Harambe Alliance, or Harambe Entrepreneurs Alliance. But actually, that was where I met in Yabuji. So we had all these young people back in this, that's where mostly UK and US, and who had these big dreams about the continent, and who are saying, you know what, can we replicate what was going on in India, in China? Can we replicate it in Africa? And they were just dreams, they were just ideas. And also, the idea for me was then, okay, fine. Uh, can we leverage entrepreneurship that, like we're seeing in China and, and, and India? And uh, can we leverage it on, on the continent? What do we need? And so for me, the idea was, can you put together all these young people who have these global networks, who are leveraging technology? Can they then use a vehicle of entrepreneurship to actually bring up around I know, a positive difference on the continent of Africa? And that was really why I had in mind and entrepreneurship. And so 2010, so that's a thing. Yeah, go ahead. I was just, just going to say, so, so the, that network, that energy, the whole zeitgeist of Africa rising, meeting all these young people, it's a thing that got you lit up, right? Yeah, it was. I mean, that, that brought we didn't have any concrete ideas. It was still very idealistic. But it just got us fired up because yeah, we were seeing these tools, we were seeing these things happen in the US, and we were seeing entrepreneurship, we were seeing this company's been founded and the question was why is nothing happening on the continent and back on the continent then mostly what was happening was okay i hope in nairobi was probably the one thing if anybody was talking about entrepreneurship in africa then it was just basically i hope nothing else was really happening and then everybody was talking about the advent of cell phones and how you know landlines were being transitioned from the landline to cell phones and how cables were going to be laid and how data was going to be become you know available again this is 2010 to 2011 I've asked, again, young folks, it was all great, and the question was, what role were we going to play in this? And for me, initially at that point in time, I thought my role was just going to be, you know, stay in the U.S., buy a couple of articles about this, and watch how things was going. But then, 2010 right. May, I happened to travel back to Lagos uh, for an event with, uh, called Future Leaders Initiative. And so while I was in Lagos, I... Then met uh, uh, a couple of people, young people also, media interview in one of the local uh, newspapers in Nigeria, where I spoke about entrepreneurship, what I was doing in Texas, and how involved I was with the startup ecosystem in Texas, and stuff like that. Again, just talk. So I flew back to the U.S., 
and thought that I was done with that. But then a friend of a friend saw a newspaper article and reached out to me and said, Idris, good talk, but why don't we do something about this? And my response was, we're here in the U.S., folks on the ground will do something about it. And I was like, no way. So, and so we got together a couple of times and that was actually what led to us starting art. So Lofty Inc. I remember the name of Lofty Inc. And then the idea was, can we turn all these Lofty ideas into corporations? So Lofty and Inc. Love Inc. Great, right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So That's awesome. Right. So let me ask you this. Yeah. Yeah. So, so let me ask you this. This is, this is fascinating stuff because you are, and I think you are in the information technology department at Chevron, right? At the yeah. time, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. yes. Very stable, very, very stable career path. But you are at the back for entrepreneurship. How do those two things merge? How do those two things merge? I'm very glad. I'm very glad because the reason I wanted to get my MBA was to actually move from the technical career ladder to the managerial career ladder at Chevron. So the MBA was actually put for by Chevron. So was Chevron sending me to do an MBA to become more of a business leader at Chevron? What was your mindset before? Are you just a committed technology path because you studied computer science? Yeah, so, so I thought, okay, so, so if you take back, I've grown up in Nigeria. I had a first class in computer engineering from Obafemiwolo uh, University in Nigeria. And then I had worked at P&G, Porto and Gamble in Nigeria, overseeing West Africa, supply chain, stuff like that, before I moved okay. to the U.S. But when I went to the U.S., my master's was in computer science, data mining, pattern classification. So very techy. And yeah. So when I joined Chevron, I was actually in the Emerging Technologies Unit of Chevron. And that was really where I was mm -hmm. applying my data mining skills and stuff like that. And so the, and that was at the end of 2005. So 2010, 2009 was when I went to business school because Chevron said, fine, you've done this for about five years and lets you move you in this other direction at Chevron. But for that, go get this business right. degree. So were you, ha were you happy and satisfied in your career at the time? I, I, I watched it. There's always that feeling. So, okay, okay, so I was part of a bigger thing. I saw where I was going. Of course, uh, as someone in the Australia, you never lose touch with backbone. So when I was watching where I was going on the continent, you were always saying this. I was saying iHub. I was seeing a few things. I was seeing mobile, telecom, and things take off. You're right, but I didn't know where I was going to fit in into that. But there wasn't anything... In my mind, I'm going to set up a company or anything back then. So at that point, the most I was doing was I was part of a couple of uh, ne African networks in the U.S. Up to then there was no idea for me uh, about you know, going to become an entrepreneur or an investor. I saw a very clear career path to the top for myself at Chevron. Uh, if not in the technical line, right. in the business line, I'd spend some time with Chevron at Angola and a few other countries. So... I had no reason. Everything was going very well. <laughs> so I had no reason to just <laughs> jump on I go jump the other base. So, so I blamed Chevron for sending me to business school. And I blamed the professors I had <laughs> in, 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 in business school. I think there, there was this wave also that was happening. A lot of folks were coming back into the, into, and talking about entrepreneurship. And I remember with a couple of friends in year one, we had founded something called the Next School Idea on campus, which was basically a 72 hour startup weekend where MBA students would start on Friday morning with just ideas. And by Sunday evening, they were coming up with MVPs. And that was really my first uh, as on attempt at, you know, creating something and building something. And so I got involved with that. Uh, out of that, I also joined a startup at Rice University. Uh, so the startup was called Libraries Across Africa. And 
So what had happened was there were two founders, two American guys on campus who were in the architecture department, mm -hmm. and they had built this concept of repurposing shipping containers, turning them into digital libraries okay. and shipping them to Africa. Mm -hmm. But these guys have never been to anywhere in Africa. They had no clue, nothing was wrong. So, <laughs> <laughs> Just adding, yeah, yeah, and so when they put on an ad, yeah, exactly, exactly. So they're trying to solve, you know, solve something I never been. So they put out this ad on campus saying they were trying to do this, and I and someone else uh, was actually one of my partners now, Kevin. So we approached them and said, guys, we know the continent. We lived on the continent. We're from the continent. So let's work together. And that was really my first startup, really. Uh, libraries across Africa. It died later uh, for several reasons. But it was a very uh, eye-opening uh, opportunity into the startup space, into even creating the concept, the ideation, raising funds, right? I went, won a couple of competitions, then moving from the point of ideating to then trying to deploy, I then understanding the market, and Accra was going to be our first market and stuff like that. So that was really, and I was doing this while working at Chevron. I was doing this working at Chevron. I, in the evening after school, the team will get out to build this. And so the process, I started reaching out to folks on the continent and learning what was going on and building those networks, which were to prove useful later. Right. But again, I think that company died off, all right? Uh, but at the same time was when I then had to visit Lagos, like I said, and spoke about entrepreneurship and what we're doing. And so when I got back and a friend challenged me and said, why don't you do something about it? That was what then led to us starting Lofty Inc., right? So we had this great idea at Lofty Inc. that ultimately employment was a solution. Africa was growing, young people, you know, government was trying all its best, but again, ultimately the answer was going to come from entrepreneurs, was going to come from more high impact jobs being created. So we knew the what. We didn't know the how. And so we would get together myself and our two other partners, Mike Agwala in Houston. I'll go to that in the evenings and just brainstorm, right? And say, what do we do? And so we said, okay, let's copy what iHub was doing, what Y Combinator was doing. And so we said, we'll set up a hub in Lagos. And I would do it remotely. We found a fourth partner, Wally Data was in Lagos. And then there was, we found a couple of partners and we put a tech hub where entrepreneurs will come to. And did you find it out of pocket? How did you guys find this? Okay, so initially, so, so, the, way, so the first thing was, well, how do we name this? So what we did, we did was we looked at innovation. I said the I represented the privacy of the individual. So we moved the I will bring the we. There'll be a collaborative right, right? Uh, so that mindset of coming together to do something together, right? And so we call it innovation hub. And then the question was, how do we fund this? How do we get started? So we approached a foundation in Nigeria called the African Leadership Foundation, and they had this small space that the Central Bank had given to them in Nigeria uh, for entrepreneurship. And they were just all the classes there. All these classes, you come in, you memorize what is entrepreneurship, types of entrepreneurship, advantages of entrepreneurship, <laughs> all these old schools. Business school stuff. <laughs> business school stuff, exactly. And so, 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 as the give us a very small, probably 15 meters, you know, very small space that, uh, that they gave us. And what we then did was uh, we had a partner in Nigeria would so go to that space and we went to approach a couple of schools. Covenant University, University of Ibadan, three or four universities in Nigeria, and said, we have free space, we have free internet, and we have free power. Now, in 2010, these were very important things. Today, we had the data on their phone. 2010, it was not the same. 2010, people were browsing, you know, exactly. So data 
power was a big thing and space in, in Lagos. And so we would come and would hold events. And then we subsidized the event. So the three of us were still working in oil and gas in the US. And so we'd, again, we have space, but we had to pay for a couple of things. I was just funny out of pocket. And again, we didn't know where this was going to lead to, but we were just like, okay, we were creating a space for potential entrepreneurs to meet themselves. And then I think 2011 was a key turning point for that. Because I think there were two key events for us in 2011. One, one of our mentors in California invited us to sh share what we were doing at our renovation hub in, at a school in California called, I think it was called Montreal Institute of Studies, I think, MIIS. So it was within a two-year MBA, MPA program. But then what they had there, they also had something they called a Frontier Market Scouts, where they would send the MBA students into new emerging markets for six months. To work with entrepreneurs and they were doing this in brazil and a few other countries so they invited us to talk about innovation hub and what we're doing now we're still just at that point in time innovation was still more big you know we had one or two staff in lagos that was uh, and my partner in lagos but that was really it and then we just having events for which come in so nothing really structured fully fledged out but what happened was uh the three partners in the u.s myself and the, uh, the two others we ended up going to this school in California, telling them about the concept of innovation, what we were doing. I think we oversold it. Because, oh, shoot. <laughs> I can't do that. I love that legal synergy. We obviously <laughs> found that, you know, you know, it, it, that was scary for us. Because we are set up <laughs> this thing. We are not even going back to Lagos since it was set up to see how it was going. All we knew was we had those great partners in the US, and this guy in Lagos was running it. And we have sold this place to this Americans who had never been to Lagos and they had bought tickets. And so we spent the rest of the time in California trying to convince them on why this was not a wise decision. Are you serious? <laughs> you're, backing out, you're backing out of the situation. <laughs> Again, we have this small space that's named out to us. And the guy who was living in Lagos was living on the mainland. If you know Lagos very well, there's the mainland, there's the island. So the hub was on the mainland in Agrikia, which is not a fancy area, um, but more of a slum area. The guy was living. And the partner in Lagos had never been outside of Nigeria. He had no exposure to these guys that was being sent in. When the athletes fled out, so we were not ready. But the man who tried to convince the people they only thought they were modern day cowboys. <laughs> <laughs> we were going to discover Africa and like uh, this entrepreneurship thing. So February 20 in London, we suddenly had actually four. So there's this Togolese American guy and then three American ladies who descended on Lagos and go to our hub and saw this small corner, right? That was all the innovation conference. And this guy was a partner who was managing this old Jalopida. That was a car and that had to be pushed each time to get started. And we were putting them in Agadir, where there was no generator, and most nights were, you know, dark. It was crazy. And I remember at that point in time, I woke up at Chevron, get to work very early, and spent most of my time settling quarrels. Because, <laughs> yeah, because, when I was on the ground, we were trying to get them to get st started, but they were, I'm being Americans, right? They were using the F word on my partner in on our partner in Lagos. Mm -hmm. We was not used to Americans. And he was saying, come and pack these yeah. guys. I don't need this fox you sent me. <laughs> come on, take baby. This is <laughs> <was, this laughs> like, like, 
<laughs> this sounds like yeah, what do you call it? Reality TV show. <laughs> yeah, if it was, right? Again, because so we're asking them, right? In a gay game, which even if you have been busy, because no foreigner lives in a gay game, right? These were white people, so it was risky and there was no power. And they were also insisting on going to parties at night, right? So we don't know it's clear, right? And then, so even finding enough for them to do building things, right? There were no startups to work with. Let's even start from there, right? Because we asked, yeah, we okay. had some one of the founders, right? And because what suddenly happened was, mm-hmm. how do we occupy these people? So we reached out to the Lagos Business School, reached out to Faith Foundation in Lagos, and it folks in the space. And so we started working with them, fleshing out what innovation was going to be, doing market studies, talking to entrepreneurs mm-hmm. about what was needed. And so we got them busy. And so, and then we had people, yeah. I think, mm-hmm. a couple of other folks in Lagos who actually were living on the island. And we offered them to spend the weekend on the island. Right? So that, they had access to swimming pools and all this fancy stuff on the weekends. And then on the weekend, yes. they were back there. I get to working with us. Well, again, it was, you know, no, no, again, it, it means we're funny still telling now, but it was really funny back then. I can because imagine. Have to... but if you have, if you have, yeah, you have foreigners in your, in your country, they're so responsible, you know. Exactly. <laughs> I want to start explaining to their school, you know, I will serious and stuff like that. So again, it was, it was, it stretched us out. I got us into the community. People know about where we were, what we were trying to do. But when they left, actually, we had the core form of what innovation was going to be. Where we had people, uh, had heard about us through them and the effort. And uh, I think they also, I think it was also formative for them because was, I'm still very much in touch with them till today. And when you know, they look back on those experiences, I think they also toughened them up, right? So I hate so uh, right, out there. Right. For us, it really fleshed out who we were going to be. And uh, it made us realize this was not going to be any like a walk in the, uh, a walk in the park, right? Because by the time they were done in summer, what had happened was, by the time they were done in summer, I remember MIT was starting this program called AITI then, where they were sending computer science majors from, from the US to go teach coding in African universities, so in, in Kenya, in Nigeria, and course. Again, this was, so this was 2011, 2011, 2012. And so we then decided we we're going to partner with them. So they had identified a couple of schools in Nigeria where they were going to teach them coding. So we said, you know what, let's be a partner. You teach them coding, we teach them business principles. And at the end of the program in summer, we have them create ideas. And that was really where our first set of founders came out of. Where, again, coding was not, you know, again, everyone is a developer right now. But the 20, everyone, right. it wasn't a thing, right? Even then, people in computer science majors were just learning just the old Fortran language and stuff like that. But these guys were coming in and did the Sharp, Java, and a few other things. They were web. And so, really, so 2011 summer was when we had our first set of what you would describe as, as, as startups, right? And I started working with them in the hub and building, and most of them, them died. But that was even what them led in 2012 to us seeking funding. Because on that point in time, we're not even talking about how we're founders, how we're startups going to be funded. But then because now, 2011, we ended up creating these startups with a partnership with MIT, our program. Then by 2012, the ones that were still alive needed funding. And of course, that's what led to the Angel, Lagos Angel Network, the Afropreneur Angel Group, and all the story about uh, funding. Right. And again, and I think that was the first way forward. So when I look back to us, so the 2010 to 2015 was probably the first wave. And I think if I look at Nigeria and most of Africa, but around the ecosystem building. And, and of course, you then add the 2016 to 2020. 
uh, and then uh, 2020. So again, I think I'm booking that. Zone. For me personally, I've been able to book it as those five-year windows, 2010 to 2015, right. 2016 to 2020, and then 2020 to right. It makes total sense. I completely agree. I made my movie, The Second Wave. I was in Silicon Valley for 17 years, and then that's when I made my movie in 2018. With the same motivations as you, fundamentally. So very kindred spirit. And let's talk a little bit about now your investing experience. Yeah, so you dipped into your 401k. Yeah. Capital. Any of those startups still around or, or is the Adela story the one that came out of that? So I think Adela was a major one. So let's, okay. So there's some that just died last year. You know, again, there were some that died very early. There are some that limped along, right? There, so if I look at the 2020, 2010 to 2015, so there's, apart from Andela, there's Epom. Epom is still alive. Epom was really 14. Let's see. Those are probably the only two that are really still alive from that first wave, right? And the rest are probably just dead, dead. Yeah, from that first wave, I think it's Andela, uh, where it knows right now, and then Epom. Everybody else is probably just dead. Or they've moved on to other things, second time founders, or they've become, for instance, some of those that died in 2020, level 12. I remember going to another campus in 2015 and meeting two guys, not even recognizing them. And they were reminding me they were actually part of the startups from the MIT events that we had. Mm -hmm. So they ended up dying, but it exposed them to the old startup thing, the old developed uh, part thing, and they became some of the early foundation employees. At Andela. So again, even this, and that's what you do. You know, sometimes you throw away seats, right? You think, but again, they still germinate in, in some form. And I think that's one thing about the ecosystem. Not everything is a direct one to one relationship between you invest and this is the success. Sometimes just watering the, the land, making it more fertile for other people who are going to come after you, right? And build up the ecosystem. And I think once you have that ecosystem thinking in mind, I said exactly, yeah. So when nothing is wasted, at the very late worst, you are investing an individual who most uh, is going to go on at some point to play another role in the ecosystem. Yeah. Fantastic. I remember early money that went, you know, lost, right? There was 2014, there was this guy who reached out on Twitter, through a other friend, I said, fine, I wrote him a $25,000 check, which was very big. I never met him, I don't know, because I was in the US, I wasn't meeting a lot of these people in person. So even when there was Zoom, for me, it was mostly investing in my Skype. I was in the US, I was writing tickets, mm -hmm. and I didn't meet in US probably about two, three years after we invested. And same thing for a lot of these other mm -hmm. books. So it was really Skype. So there was this guy who invested in this box back then. I was supposed to do the back office uh, operation for startups. So I think we invested April 2014, 25K. Got other people to also invest about 50K. And two months later, he told us it was folded. It was off. It wasn't doing anymore. The money was gone. Wow. And I'm not even going to tell up to now. So we got that. We got, uh, I think it was PwC, we got involved to do some audit. He wouldn't even open his books and stuff like that. He just got messed, right? So there were a lot of mistakes made around due diligence and with the founder and understanding the market and things like that. But again, I think the way I've described it was a period of getting my LLM, right? And learning by losing money. So that, that was it for me. <laughs> learning by losing money. That's a painful way to learn. But hey, you, you still pick the lessons and they probably stick more than any other type of lesson. So... Yes. At the time, I guess you were in the U.S., you hadn't moved to Nigeria. You're writing checks from the U.S. When did yes. you move to Nigeria? So, 2015 was pivotal. So, 2015, uh, so we've been only left in for about five years. We had the renovation hub going on, doing more of the ecosystem building, pre-seed stuff. We had angels taking on because 
uh, with the advent of Adela 2014, the angel group had gone to about five, six people from myself because we had to write follow on tickets in 2014 and 2015. Uh, so that had gone. Uh, so we had that going, uh, going on silently. And uh, so we started looking at the ecosystem, more founders ha happening. And so by 2015, two of the four founders at Alopti Inc. said, maybe we should start moving back. Maybe we should start going on the ground and building this out. So 2015 was when Michael and myself made a move. So I resigned from ExxonMobil. Michael resigned from, uh, from one person back then. I will move uh, to Nigeria. And, and the idea was we were going to spend more time on innovation. We we're going to do more angel investing. But more importantly, we're trying to we start looking at uh, also doing advisory and innovation sector. Looking at working with, whether for the World Bank, for the Gates Foundation, trying to understand the whole innovation landscape. And also trying to look at even the public sector. How do you drive innovation? It also coincided with uh, a change of government in Nigeria, right? So there was a new government coming in. And so we felt there was going to be a level playing ground. I uh, thought, okay, there will be more interest in uh, innovation, applying innovation to the public sector. So 2015 was when we made uh, that move to be more on the ground. But even at that point in time, I think running the phone was not even, even, even on, on the platform. It was just really more of building that love to ink uh, to play more of a role and building out our own businesses on the ground, supporting entrepreneurs, but also looking for opportunities on the ground to actually build out more businesses. But I think all that changed the following year, 2016. Because yes, we're building uh, Lofty Inc., but two things happened in 2016 that were fairly key to who we have become today. The first one was its series uh, B, and that was led by Mark Zuckerberg's foundation, the CZI. Foundation. Exactly. And not just that, he actually visited Lagos himself. Mark came to Lagos. And when I tried to describe the tech ecosystem in Africa, or particularly Nigeria, I say there was B, M, and A, M. Just the same way you have B, C, and A, D, right? I say B, M, A was Mark. Right? It was before Mark and after Mark. <laughs> because it was not for me. It was not for me. By 2016, my parents were worried. Left in Korea, I had gotten three master's degrees, and... I was working for Chevron as an examinable. And suddenly I resigned and moved back to Nigeria. And I'm doing this thing called Love to Ink, doing this thing. Are you crazy? Small, small, <laughs> are you okay? So again, it didn't make sense to them, right? And I wasn't buying houses. I wasn't doing real estate. I wasn't doing anything. I was just doing something called startups. And I was following the I was following, yes. Exactly. They were seeing me, I went out with this 19 year old, 20 year old. And it was just, it didn't make any sense to them. But when Mark invested, I told him, I said, you know what, dad, mom, you use Facebook. They both use Facebook. The guy who owns Facebook and myself, we're not co-investors. You want to do something right. You want to do something right. Also, a lot of the folks we spoken to three, four years earlier about the African opportunity started reaching out by email and saying, what's going on in Nigeria? Why is Mark in Nigeria? What is this Adela thing? How do we get involved? So I started getting a lot of attention. I'm like, wow, wow. They took Mark out. So that was one part. The other thing that was quite pivotal for us was 2016 was the year Flutterwave was founded. So in Abu Nijib and Adela, let Adela and partner with uh, GB and uh, Lakey to found, and I remember him giving me a call and saying, living Andela, and I'm going to be found, you know, co-founding this thing called in payment space and stuff like that. 
And my answer was, where do I send a check to? <laughs> right back. <laughs> But and, then you are ready. You are ready for action. <laughs> I was ready again. I was ready. It was a very small amount. They had not even gotten to YC, so the valuation was about two point five million dollars. And that's crazy. Wait, you remember that? Wait, wait a minute. Yeah. Inflation switch. But inflation switch is not moving fast enough. It's not that simple. There's a payment for density. <laughs> the only player paid now is inflation switch, but there's this so the inflation switch has gone too comfortable. I would tell well, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you, what was the insight? Who had that insight? Because sometimes you, in, that is an industry insight. You have to come from the industry to. Yeah, so, so I was coming from a GB. I was coming from a GB. So GB, GB had worked on PayPal. He had worked at Standard. And at that point in time, he was working at Access. And so it, so it was GB being insight saying that, but GB not having the technical know how to build that at that point in time. And at that point in time, and so another was the one who had developers. And again, I hope I'm not misrepresenting this. But the way I understood it was at GBR Co. had approached uh, Andela or uh, Andela was not interested in helping build that out and he took over the opportunity. Mm -hmm. That's what I recall. Again, maybe slightly up on the details. But that was really it, the way it was happening. It was really not uh, he with the industry, with the entrepreneurship, no, with the brand. Uh, GBR Co. with the insider, no, uh, with an understanding of the opportunities, they're coming together. So I was a new brother, and I remember back then, uh, uh, GB was still working on access, so we, we, we didn't even say chicken, so it was mostly E. But then I was basically just when I spend a check to. And where was the valuation? The valuation still made sense then. The valuation was $2.5 million. First money. So, yeah. So, with the a small check, and, and actually, put... is that a product? Did they even have a product in the market? Were they actually? Why was it valuation? It was just really the product. When I saw, I saw the deck from that for the... Yes, actually, at that point in time, they were having conversations. So, so the, so the, the way it went was this: access needed and a need, access bank had a need. So this was really spun out of an existing need by access bank to build what is now called pay with capture. And access bank didn't have the know-how internally to build it. So it was really more of a project become a startup. And they saw that it was not going to be only access one that needed it, other people would need it. So exactly. So, so, they, so they were wondering about coming with an idea and looking for clients. There was a client from day one. That's amazing. So let's fast forward to some of your exits, eh? Because I know you've deployed a lot of capital, you've seen some exits. Talk to us about some of these exits and what that has meant to you, I guess, personally or in any way, shape or form. How has that impacted you? So, so the couple of things I, I live by as an angel investor and of, of course, much later as a fund manager. So what I, I say to invest is human, to exit is divine. Oh, I, <laughs> <laughs> fantastic. I love it. And you can invest. Someone brings something to you, right? And you put money in there, right? Again. So but how do you, it's really an ecosystem where there are that many exits. And that was one of the questions people asked us in 2014. They will say, where are the exits? How do you get my money out? And again, so, so I'm very deliberate about our exiting. So that's the first maxim I live by. The second one is, in Nigeria, there's this proverb that we learned growing up, where they say, a board in hand is worth two in a bush. And so you have That's an African proverb. African, exactly. <laughs> no, so, 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 so but, 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 but I, I don't live by that. I say, when it comes to exits, when it comes to uh, the startup space, a board in hand is the only board. 
It's only but. When I said exit, I take it. You exit. I exit. So, 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 you buy and you build. Mm -hmm. So I'm on an exit as you go. So I go into a startup, I invest, and I still very close to the front. There's an opportunity. When there's an opportunity for an exit, no matter how small, I take something out. I still leave enough in. But again, I don't live by people of So again, that's for folks who want to report to their superiors about their IRR and all this nice people stuff. It's my money, right? I read this with my money. Right. And so cash back, cash in hand gives me liquidity to do, to do more. Because again, where I thrive is investing very early on. And the only way I stay active is by having dry powder to invest. And so I need liquidity. And so what I do is I invest, I stay close to helping them. And when someone comes to buy, when the vision is loud, I take something out. So I'm not greedy and say, you know what, again, I'm, 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 my name is something on the table. I want to do something on the table for others to, 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 yeah. The shortest time out between one, an investment on exit for me has been uh, seven months. There was an investment I did seven months after there was a 10x opportunity. I took 70% of my investment out, left the rest in. So we say, wait, wait, still going to grow and stuff like that. And again, so, so, so I'm not being that approach. I stay close enough, I add value, there's opportunity, I take some out, I leave enough in to keep going. So when they got Andela, for instance, I've done four partial exits, I still have enough to keep going to IPO. Sometimes we've probably done about three partial exits. I still have enough to keep going. Uh, when I say Jemo, Weave, so probably I'm you know, close to about eight, nine exits now, partial exits. And again, that's the idea. Take out the exits. Uh, if I, other agents involved, return funds to them and keep going, find new opportunities, invest in them and keep going. That, that's what we do. And so you say you invest early. How early do you invest? It sounds like at Adela, it was just basically even deck at, at the deck phase. I know well, or I suppose I know well, or you put founder. Yeah. So for the first time, I already knew if I didn't want to do deck, I put money in. I uh, would Eden Life, uh, when Nad was moving from Mandela to start Eden Life, I had known Eden Nad for a couple of years. When I did Thunder in Egypt, because Egypt is now my second market after Nigeria. So Nigeria is my biggest uh, oh, really? market, but Egypt is the second one for me. Uh, so probably have about 16, 17 uh, portfolio companies or more in Egypt now. And so some of them, right now, in the world, what I call the Uber Mafia, ex-Uber employees starting uh, companies in Egypt. I, I just write them a check. I see them, like, great space, I have the check. So but as early as, so from an angel group, as early as if you wait an idea, wait an MVP, well, then we have a form that follows on when you have at least one paying customer. So to write, to write this all tickets, but then if uh, you show traction, then we can follow on with larger tickets in our funds. So that's that's what we do. So we cover that spectrum uh, from right now from pre-seed to pre-series A. And then very soon, I think we're right. going to be some more series A placed. How do you perceive this new structure that YC recently announced? How, do you, how is that affecting? What's your perspective on that? So, so, so it's an interesting one. So again, uh, for, uh, again, so if you look at us today, a lot of our investments, particularly in the angel group, is pre-wise. So every year, we only have about five to ten of our companies. And so from our perspective, it goes well. But then we also have companies who come to us just after the YC acceptance. They get the YC, they realize YC is going to help them, but they know they need local help. They need goods on the ground. They need folks who have the networks. And so they come to us and say, we're going to YC, but before YC signs or before demo day, would you be able to invest? Because you've been on a cap table, helps us raise money at demo day, right? 
uh, or helps give the right signal that we have folks on the ground who can help us. So that's mainly the part that's mostly affected right now. The pre-YC one, again, we're, we've always been there pre-YC, so that's not affected. I think it's those companies who want us to come on between YC acceptance to demo day. Those are the ones that are probably going to be affected by this one. Because the way that happens is we're either in before YC, like we have always been, or we wait and see traction post YC. So because we, because okay, I love Rice and I love Michael and all the founders and, and I from time to time I, I catch up with Michael, but I don't use YC as a signal. I know the ecosystem enough not to wait for YC as a signal. Yeah. So I think the challenge is for a lot of folks who wait for YC and then write the tickets. And the challenge with that is this: YC is great, but a bad company is going to be a bad company whether it goes through YC or not. So I YC is great, but it's not Exactly, it gives, it gives you money, they have your network, but you still have to do the job on the ground. And so a good company gets better by going to YC. With a shitty company, even going to YC, you still go to a many shit company. Just a fancier, more expensive, shitty company. All right? So, so that's my. <laughs> <laughs> that's my thing. So again, I think, again, when we trust it to get how it evolves. And then the thing for my YC also is YC is also having competition. A lot, of other com a lot of companies are also wondering why should we go to YC? There's on deck now, there's text, yeah. there are more options. So it's, it's different from 2016, 2017, where YC was the only stop. So the next two, three years, I think it'll be interesting to see whether YC still keeps, keeps up with this approach, whether it changes, how that impacts who goes to YC, who does not go to YC, and how that impacts other seed funds. So again, I don't think we're uh, too impacted. Again, we think there's still a lot of opportunities out there for YC, and we're willing to take those bets, help them very early on. And again, if there's some we see after YC that makes sense, in terms of traction, and not just because they are wise companies, we'll still invest. It's only our fund likes to come in early under $5 million, but we've done a couple of investments around 15, 20 million, where it made sense, where the founders were great, where we see the traction. What we just do is, when we're taking the risk very early on, we want to be sure that's factored into the valuation. And when valuations are higher, we want to be sure that it's factored into the traction. So that's okay. when we look at this. Makes sense. Yeah. And okay. So a few final questions for you. So in terms of founders, you say, what do you look for? What is that thing that you look for now? That how has your evaluation evolved? Give us yeah, a sense of these are the things that you look for before you invest. Definitely. So it's again, at the end of the day for me, I think I, um, this is not a job for me. Even though I'm a fund manager, yeah, it's something I enjoy doing. I so I really want to spend my time with the good people. I want away from great deals with you. People that I don't just didn't jive with, right? Wouldn't be able to spend time with again. Right, right. Like this has been something that you spent five, ten years together on WhatsApp, on emails, meeting each other, you know, knowing each other's families and stuff like that. We want to invest in good people, right? Even if they fail, and that's very key to all. But when we boil down our investment, our criteria is in three things. We say, why you, why now, how big? So why you? We send it around the founder and the founding team. Why are you solving this problem? What's your connection to this domain? Right. What's this side do you have? What's your story? Why this problem? Why not something else? Why would you why would you stay on this? What's your connection? What do you know differently? What differentiates you? What how do you what networks, what net access, what insights do you have that's going to give you an advantage? What unfair advantage do you have? And then your founding team in your networks again about this. So it's very important to us. So the founding team. It's probably about 60, 70% of this, right? Because all things involve, business ideas involve, the space involves. 
But what you can hold on to is the founder and the founding team. So that's the key thing for us. All right. Then, so once you answer the why you, then we now say why now. Timing is one of the biggest factors in our success. The ideas that would have failed five years ago but would do well now because of COVID, because of uh, technology and things like that. So we're asking what trends are you seeing? What understanding of the market do you have? For now, for the future, you think is supporting why you're doing this, right? So again, what waves are you seeing? What are what you look ahead, right? So why now? What's what's is it economic changes? Is it regulatory changes? Is it larger market changes? Is it something in other markets? So why now? Why would this succeed? I think that's, that's a big factor for us. Then we're not saying how big, right? Again, the funds our funds are limited, so there are only so many ideas we can support, so many founders. So I say, how big are you thinking? Are you solving a small Tiny problem somewhere, great, right? Do it. But are you really, really moving the needle? Are you solving something for your community, for Africa, for the world? What, who's getting impacted by this? One of these change in the in, in the in the scheme of things. So again, for us, that's, that's really what, what we're asking. So we're saying, why you? Why now? How big? And everything else is built around that. Uh, so sector-wide, we're agnostic, but we like to focus on six sectors. The way we describe it is this: we say Africans are essentially traders, even before technology. We've always traded with each other. And so we're asking, who's building technology that allows trading to become easier? Whether well, that's Q-commerce, e-commerce, so that's one. But for you to do commerce very well, you need to be able to solve for payments, for fintech, for credit. For... So again, who's building the fintech systems, embedded fintech that allows commerce to grow and seamlessly? There was the logistics that allow delivery of goods and services of people, right? So there are three core sectors, commerce, fintech, and logistics. But we say, essentially, we're Africans. We're Af and for us, this is more than Naya and Congo. It's more than dollars and cents. It's about building a future for opportunities. And so and that is not going to happen unless you have Africans who are well-educated, who are healthy, and who are food secure. Human capital. So who are food secure. So it's, exactly. So it's healthcare, it's education, it's our food security. So that's really our six sector, right? So that's, the first part is about uh, the commerce and enabling commerce and our prosperity. Second so part is about human capital and LV, welfare. That's really what, what we are nothing. Yeah. I, I love it. I love it. Listen, I have enjoyed, Abuiji, I've enjoyed every minute of this. I think you have a treasure trove of valuable experience, insights, but the thing that stands out the most for me is your spirit. It's you have a pure spirit, like you're doing it for, like you said, the vision has stayed the same. The purpose has stayed the same. The path may have changed here and there. Flexible on the journey, flexible on the details. And then it's, we don't, we're not going to have a good destination. So we just have to enjoy the journey. Right. I, I love it. Amazing. And it sounds to me like your favorite, you, like you said, Lagos and Cairo, or, or at least what do you call it, Egypt, are your favorite markets right now. If you're to rank your top markets for where pipe, pipeline is or portfolio is, however you want to rank that, yeah, I think you said Lagos, Egypt. What's yeah, it? Cairo, Lagos, Cairo. I think next is going to be between Nairobi and Jobok. So again, I think if I look at my stop, so Nairobi and Jobok. We're also increasingly paying attention to. Two markets, uh, actually three different markets, which are actually different from our fo African focus. One is diaspora in the U.S. There's a lot of, again, you see a lot of migration, right, in the past two, three decades from Africa to Canada to the U.S. 
there are second generation folks who have founded companies. You've heard of Calendly and so on, things like that. So we're looking at that very seriously and, and looking for founders who are in the US. So actually last year we brought a couple in the US and the UK uh, who are second generation Africans. And so that's a big market for us that we're exploring. Also as people who have lived in diaspora ourselves, I would say, we'll see the need. That's one. With the two other markets which are also quite interesting uh, and adjacent to Africa, one is Pakistan. So yeah, so individually we've done a couple of investments in Pakistan because usually I like to joke that there are three sister cities, Lagos, Cairo, Karachi. They're very chaotic, <laughs> right? <laughs> but it's also amazing the needs that need to be met in those cities and the opportunities for entrepreneurship. Mm. And so, uh, and so, so we've seen that. And because we now see a lot of models when we first see them in, in, in Pakistan and then Five months later, six months later, that's all he's doing in Lagos or in Cairo. And so we... Yeah, so... Yeah. So pattern matching. Exactly, pattern matching since they study. Where we also study very closely is Latin America. So when it comes to fintech, we're seeing a couple of fintech solutions that go from Africa to Latin America or vice versa. So again, very interesting uh, stats. And, and uh, on that, we'll be partnering with folks like Rallycap. Rallycap has done a lot job in Latin America. So we're studying and, and co-investing with them on some opportunities. Yeah, so again... I think it's still very early, and I like to say it's still day one for the emerging market, for the African uh, ecosystem. And we're just glad to, to be here and uh, to be enjoying the journey and meeting the great founders. I'm looking forward to the next couple of years. You know, yeah, I always like to look at the cultural differences of what makes certain ecosystems tick. And you, you are in Nairobi, you've got a portfolio in Nairobi, I live here, and I'm always trying to ask myself what the differences are to the ecosystem. So, so let, me, let me contrast the three ecosystems very interestingly. So when I look at Nigeria and Egypt, I call Nigerians the Egyptians of West Africa, or I call the Egyptians the Nigerians of North Africa. Those are the impatience, <laughs> the aggressiveness, uh -huh. uh, the willingness to uh -huh. uh, want to you know get it done, get stuff done. Mm. Now where the difference comes in, where the difference comes in is in as well in the fintech space. In Nigeria, you seek for forgiveness, not permission. In Egypt, you seek for permission or forgiveness. The rehabilitators can go ahead and don't play. They don't play, exactly. So, <laughs> I'm saying that for instance, there was time that we went ahead of the rehabilitator and then got, got, uh, got slammed. Uh, but the difference is the rehabilitator is actually very well many, right? So, ultimately, the rehabilitator works in your favor in Egypt, right? Just takes time. Mm -hmm. uh, in Nigeria, you cannot really count on the rehabilitator working in your favor. So, you have to be two steps ahead, right? It's one of the great things of daily and thinks, how can I screw, screw these guys up right in Nigeria? So that's, that's what it did to me. So that's Egypt and Nigeria, right? So when, when, I consider, when I compare Nigeria and Kenya, I'm going to use this analogy that a friend gave me a while back and which I found very true. Uh, because a few years ago, Nairobi, Lagos, Kenya, Nigeria were almost at par. And Kenya, Kenya was even ahead. That's of investments, that's of Kenya seems to have slowed down. Yeah. I slowed down. My, my analogy is this. Nairobi is a very nice place to live. Very easy going, things work. Uh, Safari come has solved a lot of problems with Impesa, right? So things are going fairly well. So when we look at Kenya, I look at it as imagine people in a boat as a roof. But the roof has some point in which it's leaking. And so folks in Kenya are just trying to patch those points. Most of the stuff. <laughs> <laughs> no, the it doesn't fall on them. Nigeria, on the other hand, yeah. it, the same boat, salmon, is the same. Then there are holes in the ship itself. 